0: Have you ever been in a church context uh, where you've been confronted with false teaching? I'm not asking if you've ever been in a church, whether as a visitor or as a member, uh, that holds to a less than biblical view of baptism, say, or the spiritual gifts, or uh, church government, or the details surrounding the timeline of Christ's return. Those are all important, uh, but those are all secondary and tertiary matters. Uh, The gospel still holds at the center. I'm asking if you've ever been in a church that teaches heresy, false teaching, which, if believed and practiced, damns people's souls. I have. I've been in churches where the pastor is teaching his people lies week after week. It's an infuriating, heartbreaking, frustrating thing to experience. To see people like sheep without a shepherd, Eating up false doctrine, all the while trusting that what their pastor is telling them is true. I've been in a church where there's a fifth column in the congregation promoting falsehood, bad teaching that results in bad living, and the church leadership does nothing about it. Either for personal, political, sentimental, or pragmatic reasons, the pastors refuse to act as shepherds and protect the flock. Brothers and sisters, the history of Christ's church is inseparable from the history of Satan's attempt to destroy her. And yes, while difficult challenges have arisen from outside the church, persecutions, government clampdowns, the most dangerous threats have always been from within the church. What does the Apostle Paul, say, in Acts chapter 20, 25, talking to the Ephesian elders before going up to Jerusalem. He says, he says to them, Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves, false teachers, will come in among you, and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, and he's speaking to pastors, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away the disciples after them. So be on your guard, Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Oftentimes, church leaders, pastors, elders, are wolves in sheep's clothing. Men who turn the life-giving gospel into a means of securing health and wealth. False teachers who deny the Trinity False teachers who soft-pedal the absolute authority of Scripture. False teachers who domesticate the Scripture to accommodate the culture on issues related to gender, marriage, sexual immorality. Leaders in the church who don't practice any kind of discipline over the flock. Church members are free to practice immorality unrepentantly in the name of love and non-judgmentalism. False teachers who accept other faiths as legitimate paths to God, who teach that personal faith in Jesus may be circumvented if one is truly sincere. False teachers who say the exclusivist claims of biblical Christianity are too narrow, too intolerant, and God's love is bigger than all of that. False teachers who tell their people the Bible has mistakes in it even small, insignificant mistakes. The Apostle Peter begins chapter 2 of his letter with these sobering words. But there were also false prophets among the people, that is, the old covenant people of Israel. Just as there will be false teachers among you, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. And with these verses, Peter introduces the subject that occupies the rest of his letter. From here to the end of the epistle, this is what Second Peter is all about, the condemnation of false teachers. He's already hinted at the existence of false teachers in the church back in chapter 1, verse 16. Remember, they're calling the apostles' doctrine of the return of Jesus in glory a cleverly devised story. It's a myth, they're saying absolute evil, right? That is satanic. Now, Peter turns his full attention on them. And I've titled today's sermon, False Teachers and Their Destruction, Part 1. Next week, Lord willing, will be Part 2, and we'll finish off the chapter. And then the following week, Lord willing, it will be all of Chapter 3, the conclusion in one go. And Peter begins, if you look at your bullets, the first point in your outline, Peter begins simply by introducing the false teachers and then briefly characterizing them in verses 1 to 3. And we need to note that the key word in these verses is destruction, destructive. The false teaching itself is destructive, verse 1, and it will bring destruction. It will bring hell on the false teachers who are promoting it, verses 1 and 3. So look at verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, but just as there will be false teachers among you. And Peter writes also in verse 1 because there's a very close connection between this verse and what's just preceded. Obviously, when it says chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, that's not in the original text. So this is very much linked with what just came before. Look at uh, chapter 1, verse 20 to 21. He writes, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, you see, because God himself speaks reliably through his Old Testament prophets, we must pay close attention to their words. And then just continuing on, but he reminds us in chapter 2, verse 1, there were also false prophets among uh, the old covenant people of Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you in the church. New City, the history of Israel is littered with examples of men who claimed to speak for God, but they were really, really, they were just advancing their own agendas. And as Richard bockham notes... These Old Testament false prophets regularly shared three characteristics, and the Apostle Peter applies all three to the false teachers he denounces here. Number one, they don't speak with divine authority, they're not being carried along by the Holy Spirit in any sense. Two, their message is one of good news, promising peace, promising security, in contrast to the warnings about judgment given by true prophets. Three, they are shown to be worthy of condemnation. Folks, this is serious business. This is a serious text. This isn't a pleasant topic. I mean, I'd much rather be preaching about something else. But this is in our Bibles for a reason. Something else that I'm sure you noticed In the first three verses, Peter uses the future tense. There will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Many will follow their depraved conduct. These teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Also in chapter 3, verse 3, in the last days, scoffers will come. So why is Peter talking about the future when this is something his readers are dealing with right now? I think it's because Peter is, is uh, quoting early Christian prophecies about the rise of false teachings. For example, Jesus warned his followers about false teaching in Mark 13, in the Olivet Discourse. Uh, I'll just read that text. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I told you everything ahead of time. That's directly from Jesus. And I've I've preached and taught on the Olivet Discourse a number of times at New City, most recently in our Eschatology Sunday School series. Jesus isn't talking here about the distant, distant future in these verses, a future even distant to us. He's describing the period between his first coming and his second coming, the entire interadvental period. And our Lord warns the church not to be surprised. Don't be shocked at the deviant teaching that will quickly begin to compete with the true teaching of the gospel. In fact, in fact, the entire period between Jesus' first coming and his second will be characterized, characterized by false messiahs who deceive. Messiah means anointed one, and our Lord Jesus, he warns his people that the entire age between his two comings will be characterized by self-anointed Spiritual deceivers. Beloved, watch out that no one deceives you. People will appear who, if possible, could deceive the very elect. That's a strong warning. I can't imagine a more serious warning to be very, very careful about the theological books or blogs we read. The preachers we heed. The churches we join. The seminaries we attend or the elders we install. Everything and everyone must be tested by the word of God. As Jesus says in verse 23 of Mark 13, so be on your guard, I have told you everything ahead of time. Now, in the rest of this opening... Peter gives a, a brief profile of these false teachers. He avoids specifics, his brush strokes are very broad, but he impresses on his readers the seriousness of the threat of these false teachers, how that they are a very serious threat to the church. And the first thing we learn, and you can follow along in your handout, is that these teachers will secretly introduce destructive heresies, verse 1b, destructive heresies. And the Greek term, the NIV translates, secretly introduce, is unique in the New Testament. It's only used the one time here. The top Greek lexicon, it's called BDAG, it defines the word as to cause something to happen by introducing factors from outside. Factors from outside. So its meaning really is to bring in, and while it often does indicate um, a secretive action, only the context can indicate whether or not the bringing in is secretive or not. I don't think The Apostle's emphasis here is on the secretiveness of the behavior, but rather that these false teachings are being brought in from the outside, right? These teachings aren't part of the apostolic tradition that the church has received. It's from outside. These are destructive teachings. A term Peter uses five times in this letter. Three times in this section, and then twice in chapter 3. And of course, his classic use is in chapter 3, verse 7. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. He's talking about eschatological judgment, isn't he? The implication being these teachings are destructive in that they lead those who follow them to destruction. These teachings actually send people to hell. They're destructive. They will introduce from the outside destructive teachings to the church. And it's a warning. The second thing we learn about these false teachers is that they deny the sovereign Lord who bought them. That means once they did belong to Jesus, but now these teachers deny him. Now, how these false teachers deny the Lord, Peter doesn't say. Is this a theological denial related to their skepticism about Jesus' return and glory? Uh, Or is this a practical denial? As in, their licentious lifestyle, their sexual sin, amounts in effect to a denial of Jesus Christ. It's probably both. Their denial involves both teaching and practices that are incompatible with knowing Jesus and acknowledging Jesus as Lord. And the results are disastrous. They're bringing swift destruction on themselves, eschatological condemnation, hell, Their teachings are destructive to others. And so God brings swift destruction upon them. Verse 2. Very sobering. Many will follow their depraved conduct. And will bring the way of truth into disrepute. I don't know which part of that verse is more terrible. The popularity of these false teachers is great. Many will follow their depraved conduct. It's sad, but it's a fact of church life. There are always people attracted to new and different teachings, especially if it removes the bonds of moral constraint and accountability to a holy judge. I like think the false teachers are dying here the return of Jesus Christ in judgment. Of course you're going to live a certain way if that's what you believe. What did the serpent say to Eve in the garden? when she told him that God said they would die if they, eat, if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent responds, you will not certainly die. Which is a flat-out contradiction of what the Lord God had said. According to the Bible's storyline, the first doctrine to be denied is the doctrine of judgment. It's safe to rebel against God. And nothing's changed. Verse 2. Many will follow their depraved conduct. And that word depraved is sexually toned. And will bring the way of truth into disrepute. So the sexual license of these teachers is catching. And as it becomes apparent in the Christian church. The way of truth is brought into disrepute. It's being slandered. The impact is disastrous. Folks, I'm 46 years old. Which means I lived through the 80s. Jimmy Swaggart, Jim Baker. Those names are a byword in our culture to this day for Christian hypocrisy and sexual sin. Friend, if you're a believer, let me ask you. Do people in your family, in your place of work, in your building, your neighbors who live on your street, do they know, do they know that you follow Jesus Christ? Do people know that you're a Christian? I I hope so. And if they do, then you can be certain. You can be certain that they're watching you. And they're watching your character. And they're looking for flaws. They're looking for inconsistencies. So that the way of God's truth might be brought into disrepute. That the gospel might be slandered. That's not some crazy conspiracy theory. That's a fact. I've told this story before, but in 2001, before moving to Toronto, back in my hometown of 5,000 people, I was in the local convenience store one day where I purchased a copy of Rolling Stone, the music magazine. Uh, But I grabbed it off a rack that also contained pornography. For whatever reason, this convenience store stocked Rolling Stone next to Playboy. Uh, And I just happened to put the magazine on the checkout counter face down. When a man I hadn't seen in the store, my uncle, my mother's brother, a man who knew I was a Christian, but who was himself an unbeliever, a man my mom had been evangelizing for 40 years, a man who would deliberately follow my mother uh, at her car at a distance as she was driving down a country road to see if, if she would break the speed limit, right? So then he could tease her about Christians breaking the law. This guy, my uncle, he, he snuck up behind me, and he turned the magazine cover over to see the cover. And he, he saw the rack that I had taken it from. And there was you 2 on the cover, just checking he said with a smile, but he was serious, and if that had been a dirty magazine, let me tell you, I left the store that day with my heart filled with gratitude to God for his grace. I'd been a Christian for three years at that point. I was so joyful that my life in that moment could be a testimony to the power of the gospel and not a stumbling block of sin bringing the way of truth into disrepute. And in God's sovereign mercy, my uncle professed faith in Christ before he died of cancer five years later. I preached his funeral sermon. He asked that I preach it. And all our family who didn't believe the gospel and all my uncle's friends who didn't believe the gospel, they all heard the good news that day of what God had accomplished through Jesus' death and resurrection for sin. But if Uncle Bill had caught his supposedly Christian nephew with a filthy porn mag, somebody else would have taken that funeral service. He wouldn't have had me. Brother, sister, are you living a life characterized by sexual purity? Is your lifestyle winning the respect of outsiders? If non Christians are going to be scandalized by something about us, it needs to be the cross itself. It needs to be our wholehearted trust in a crucified divine Messiah. That's the true scandal of Christianity, not our lifestyles. God forbid. Our lifestyles are to be characterized by godliness, characterized by holiness. Verse 3. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. The false teachers have accused the apostles of making up cleverly devised stories about the return of Jesus. So Peter turns the tables on them and he says the false teachers themselves use fabricated stories. And they make up these stories from greedy motives. Peter alludes to this motivation later in chapter 2. We'll consider that in more detail next week. But he compares the false teachers to the Old Testament figure of Balaam, who loved the wages of wickedness. He calls them experts in greed. Verse 14. They're exploiting the believers, trading in stories that they've made up. But they won't get away with it. 3B. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. God is sovereign. They may think they won't have to reckon with God's judgment, but their destruction for leading others into destruction is inevitable. It's inevitable. Brothers and sisters, false teachers take on many forms. Really, false teachers are custom-crafted to times and cultures and contexts. And I found a great piece uh, by Conrad Mbewe, the pastor of uh, Kuabata Reformed Baptist Church in Lusaka, Zambia, Pastor Mbewe is a man who knows a great deal about false teaching. Africa is rife with it. Much of it exported from the United States and shot through with African spiritism. So, I want to share uh, his thoughts with you on this matter, along with some clarifying input from our brother Tim Challies. You can see this in your hand up. Just a heads up. Uh, while I'm, I followed the biblical text describing these false teachers in masculine terms, uh, they can just as easily be female. Right? Be it known, I am... A, out-and-out egalitarian on that front. So, follow along in your outline. These are seven false teachers you will find carrying out their deceptive, destructive work in the church today. Number one, the heretic. Not not a word you hear much anymore, is that? heretic. The heretic is the most prominent and perhaps the most dangerous of these false teachers. And Peter warns against the heretic in our text today, in chapter 2, verse 1. They will secretly introduce destructive Heresies. The heretic is the person who teaches what blatantly contradicts an essential teaching of the Christian faith. It's one of those first level issues. He's usually a gregarious figure, a natural leader, teaching just enough truth to mask his deadly error. Yet, in denying the faith and celebrating what is false, he leads his followers away from the safety of of orthodoxy and into the peril of heresy and from the church's earliest days she's been afflicted by the heretic in his various forms he continues his evil work today sometimes by contradicting the truth sometimes by adding to the truth for instance he may reframe the doctrine of the trinity as Arius did in the third century and as oneness Pentecostals do today He may, like Marcus Borg and other prominent scholars, deny the virgin birth or Jesus' resurrection. Like Jehovah's Witnesses, he may alter God's finished word. Or like the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, he may add to it. Always, the heretic boldly tampers with the faith that was once and for all entrusted to God's holy people. Jude 1.3 Something to think about. False teachers and false prophets are a lot Easier to spot when they stand outside the fellowship of God's people and criticize things. Atheists like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens guys those people don't really represent much threat to us, New City. Uh, Men like that seduce far smaller numbers of God's people than many pastors promising their biblically illiterate congregations health and wealth. Those are the really dangerous guys. The most dangerous false teachers in the church are those who, in the name of the gospel, twist the church into its perverse mold. They have enough Christian knowledge and phraseology to baptize their false teaching and and wonky biblical interpretations with a kind of pseudo-biblical legitimacy. And so their presentation fools people. I mean, I all, they have their Bibles open, right? And the Bible is the Word of God. So what they're saying must be true because supposedly they're preaching from the Bible. Men like this certainly don't stand in the pulpit and say things like, I disown Jesus Christ. Or I deny that Jesus fully redeemed me from my sin. If they did, they'd be found out immediately for who they are, right? Satan's far too smart for that. No, their approach is almost always to relativize Jesus. They diminish his significance, or they allow Jesus to stand as part of the sort of the background noise, while they direct the attention of believers to their own agenda. Legalism, perhaps, or endless self help, or sentimentalized therapy, health, wealth, or a Jesus who is no more than one of many, many options. It basically comes down to this. The gospel itself, what God has accomplished through Jesus' death and resurrection for sin, is no longer at the very center. And in every generation, there are people circulating in and around the church, pushing the gospel to the periphery, pushing the gospel to the side. In every generation, there are people in the church who devote themselves to peripheral matters. They major on the minors and thus distort what's central. Beware the heretic. Actually, I had a visit just the other week uh, from two Jehovah's Witnesses. I was sitting on my front porch working on my sermon. And uh, now I, I take, um, I adopt a different evangelistic approach with different people, depending on the context, who they are, their background, and stuff. But with Jehovah's Witnesses and with Mormons, um, they are so deeply, deeply entrenched in their falsehood. It's like talking to a brick wall. And I have more of a just a. I have a kind of one-size-fits-all one approach to my evangelism to so Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. 99 times out of 100, debating a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon will get you nowhere. I mean, they've come to your house to proselytize you and never alone, right? So they're kind of a peer pressure not to give in. There's two of them there. So my practice, rightly or wrongly, and you can disagree with this, but my practice is to say to them right from the start, friend, I I say this in love, but you are heretics. You deny the Trinity, and you're in danger of hell. And just the other week, these two guys, one of them said, oh, the Trinity, that's that's deep doctrine. And I said, no, it's essential biblical doctrine, and it has been for 2,000 years. Your position has been declared heretical by the church for centuries you need to repent and believe the truth. And then predictably, and this is classic, one of them piped up, "Well, what about John 14:28? The Father is greater than I." And I said, "You just proved my point. You're so deeply entrenched in your unbelief and heresy that you have proof texts ready to go. You've obviously fought long and hard about this, and now you've come here to my street spreading your faults, your falsities." your falsehoods. Come back, I said this then, you know, I like this part, but come back to my house later when you want to talk about this in a different context, not going down the street and knocking on every door and you don't have to let the other man know that you're coming. You can come secretly and we'll talk and I'll open up the word of God and we'll actually talk about the gospel and what's true. And then this time around, the guy, one guy said, are you Catholic? <laughs> and I said, no, I'm Protestant. <laughs> but beware the heretics. Number two: the charlatan. The charlatan is only interested in the Christian faith to the extent that it can fill his wallet, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 6:5, "Who think that godliness is a means to financial gain." The charlatan is the person who uses Christianity as a means of personal enrichment. The charlatan is only interested in the Christian faith to the extent that it can fill his wallet. He uses his leadership position to benefit from others' wealth. Simon Magus, Acts 8, 9-24, to he was motivated by the love of money when he tried to purchase the power of the Holy Spirit. Since him, the charlatan has appeared in many forms, always seeking prominence in the church so that he can live in extravagance. When Pope Leo X famously commissioned Tetzel to sell indulgences, the prophets not only funded the reconstruction of St. Peter's Basilica, but also his luxurious lifestyle. In the 1990s, televangelist Robert Tilton brought in tens of millions of dollars each year by exploiting the vulnerable and the gullible. Benny Hinn's net worth, $60 million. Creflo Dollars' net worth, $27 million. And a host of others who peddled the prosperity gospel to enrich themselves from their followers' gifts. Beware the charlatan. Number three, the prophet. The prophet claims to be gifted by God to speak fresh revelation outside of Scripture. New, authoritative words of prediction, teaching, rebuke, or encouragement. In reality, though, he's commissioned and empowered by Satan for the purpose of misleading and disrupting Christ's church. John offered an urgent warning about him in 1 John 4.1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Christians must test the spirits to determine if they originate with the Holy Spirit or with a demonic spirit. And that's not some mystical, spiritual gift, guys. It's doctrinal discernment, profound doctrinal discernment. God has spoken fully and finally in Scripture, loved ones. And anyone who claims to bring revelation equal to or contrary to Scripture is false. Automatic. But the prophet appears throughout the history of the church. As early as the 2nd century, Montanus and his disciples claimed to speak on behalf of the Holy Spirit. In the 19th century, Joseph Smith claimed to receive the Book of of Mormon from the angel Moroni. Today, the airways and interwebs are chock full of people claiming to speak in the name of God through the power of the Spirit. Literally, personal prophecies are just a phone call away. You see these advertisements. Personal prophecies just a phone call away. Sarah Young, author of the top Christian bestseller of the decade, Jesus Calling. Forty million copies sold boldly claims that her book contains the very words of Jesus. New City, the prophet continues to speak to lead astray. And let me just say if you own that book, Jesus Calling, if you've read it, if you believed it, if you liked it, if you didn't throw it into the trash, please come talk to me or Pastor Alex. We're, We're deeply concerned for you. Sarah Young is a false teacher Sarah Young is a false prophet. Number 4 the abuser. The abuser uses his position of leadership to take advantage of other people. Usually he takes advantage of them to feed his sexual lust, though he may also desire power. Both Peter and Jude are aware of the abuser's lechery. In in 2nd Peter chapter 2 just look at these verses, verse 2. Many will follow their depraved Conduct, that's sexual in nature, and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. Verse 14, with eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. Verse 18, by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. Or Jude 4, for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ as our only sovereign and Lord. The abuser claims he's tending souls, but his true interest is in ravishing bodies. He works his way into women's lives, confidence, homes, and beds. And when he's not pursuing illicit sexual pleasure... He may be domineering people to gain power, abusing them on his path to prominence. He does this in the name of ministry, with the claim of God's anointing. This man unapologetically uses and abuses others to feed his own lusts. And tragically, the history of the Christian faith features countless abusers. Even in the church's earliest days, there were sex cults and other depraved perversions of the faith. For centuries, the papacy was little more than a corrupt power struggle. Now it seems every week, we learn of another Christian leader who has been found guilty of sexual sin with men, with women, or even children. Meanwhile, we hear sad tales of survivors who have been abused and cast aside by a leader craving power. Number five, the divider. The divider uses false doctrine to disrupt or destroy a church. He gleefully divides brother from brother, sister from sister. Jesus, Jude, rather, warns us about him, verses 18 to 21. In the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. The divider is devoid of the Holy Spirit, whose first fruit is love, and whose special work is holding believers together in the bond of peace. Galatians 5.22, Ephesians 4.3 The false teacher brings strife, not love. He generates factions, not unity. He desires discord, not harmony. And congregations and denominations have often been splintered by the divider as he promulgates his lies. He sometimes makes a minor doctrine into the mark of Christian maturity, causing factions to arise within the body. He may slyly introduce unbiblical doctrines or he may undermine the leadership of the elders. But he does it all for the perverse satisfaction that comes with destruction. Number six, the tickler. And that may sound like a funny name, but he's anything but. The tickler is the false teacher who cares nothing for what God wants and everything for what people want. He is the people pleaser rather than the God pleaser. Paul thought of him as being an ear tickler. 2 Timothy 4, 3-4. The time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. The tickler craves popularity and praise from the world, and to maintain his followers' respect, he preaches only the parts of the Bible that they deem acceptable. Therefore, he speaks much of happiness, but little of sin. Much of heaven, nothing of hell. He preaches a partial gospel, which is no gospel at all. He preaches an empty gospel to a packed out church. And the tickler is as old as the church itself. In the 19th century, he was Henry Ward Beecher. In the 20th century, he was Norman Vincent Peale and Robert Schuller. Today, he is Joel Osteen, pastor of the largest church in America, who is known equally for his toothy smile and his vacuous content. Joel Osteen preaches an empty gospel to a packed out church. 17,000 seats. Like the false prophets of Jeremiah's day, he and the thousands like him say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Finally, number seven, the speculator. The speculator is the one obsessed with novelty, originality, speculation. The author, author of Hebrews warned his church of these strange teachings, while Paul told Timothy to protect the church against any different doctrine. Hebrews 13.9, 1 Timothy 1.3. Teaching focused on speculation displaces the sure and steady diet of scripture itself. The spectator, the speculator tosses aside the bulk of the Bible's content and the weight of the Bible's emphasis in order to obsess about matters that are trivial or novel. He grows weary of the old truths and pursues respectability through originality. Today, as in every age, the speculator obsesses about the end times. And somehow his failed predictions dissuade neither himself nor his followers. Recently, we saw him obscuring the clear message of Scripture to search for hidden codes in the Bible. Remember that? Hidden codes? Sometimes he plants himself in academia, where one of his recent masterpieces is a reimagined God who is unable to see and know the future That false teaching is promulgated by men like Greg Boyd and Clark Pinnock. It's called open theism. Paul warns Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.20, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. Tim Challies writes this, Satan's Greatest ambassadors are not pimps, politicians, or power brokers, but pastors. His priests don't peddle a different religion, but a deadly perversion of the true one. His troops do not make a full-out frontal assault, but work as agents, sneaking into the opposing army. Satan's tactics are studied, clever, predictable, effective. Therefore, we must always remain vigilant. Jesus warned us in Matthew 7, 15 to 17, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Okay, let's go back to 2 Peter 2, verses 4 to 10. We're looking at our second point now. It's our much, much shorter point. Don't worry. Seven minutes and we're done. All right. And the key idea in this next section is that God reserves evil people for judgment, and the false teachers are definitely evil. But He also, God also rescues the godly. those two things. Those two themes will take us to the end of our passage today. The structure of verses 4 to 10 is very simple. Peter writes one long conditional sentence. And the NIV translation helps us make sense of things by breaking up the sentence into five parts. And by repeating the word if. The Greek word for if only appears in verse 4. But this helps us a lot. So let's take a step back to verse 3. And take a running start at this. In their greed these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them. And their destruction has not been sleeping. Verse 4. For if. God did not spare angels when they sinned. But sent them to hell. Putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. If. He did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If This is so, verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. So as we see, Peter gives us three examples of God's judgment and two examples of divine rescue all taken in chronological order from the book of Genesis. I'll leave this out in your handout. You can see it. Example 1, God judged sinful angels. Example 2, God judged the ancient world with the flood and rescued Noah and his family. Example 3, God judged Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and he rescued Lot. Verse 4, God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. What's he referring to? Where is the story found in our Bibles? Genesis 6, 1-4, where we read... When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, and that, I would argue, is a reference to angels, saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married, any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. Okay, there's enough crazy stuff going on in that passage to keep us here for hours, all right? I, I do have a sermon that you can listen to on the church website. And in that sermon, I lay it all on the line. It's called The World Before the Flood, Genesis 5, 1 to 6, 8, from October 11th, 2020. It's there if you want to hear it. But what a lesson is here for us, beloved. Angels are the most glorious and mighty of beings under God. But all their power and dignity were of no use when they sinned. God was unsparing in his judgment. And the main point Peter makes from this story is the certainty, the inevitability of angelic judgment. That judgment of the angels who sinned is 100% sure. They're already in prison. They're already in hell. How much sure is the judgment of those who have denied the sovereign Lord who bought them? That's the argument. And what these false teachers should learn is that if they despise authority, verse 10, if they reject the lordship of Christ, verse 1, then they will hear the judgment of Jesus, which he foretold in Matthew twenty-five, forty-one. Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Peter then moves on to his next example and notice the example is both one of judgment and deliverance. Verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness and seven others. And and that comes from Genesis uh, chapter 6 through 9. Again, he's working chronologically through the Genesis text and Peter's thrust, why he appeals to this story is plain enough. God knows how to rescue the godly and punish the ungodly. If God distinguished between Noah and the rest of the ancient world, if he brought judgment on the ungodly, then how can we escape the conclusion that at the end, judgment will fall, but some will be saved? Right? And what does that say about the kind of people we then ought to be, loved ones? If He condemned verse 6, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes... And made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man. Who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the laws. So you see there's another contrast going on here. This time is between the destruction of Sodom. And the rescue of righteous Lot. But Peter's concern isn't only to show that God made a distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous in the past. Way back there in Genesis. He also argues that. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment, right? In the future, verse 9. That's where he's looking to. So if we're genuine believers, this biblical truth is supposed to influence our behavior. God judges those who obstinately disregard his commands while he protects those who stay faithful to him. And that is... In a nutshell, is the application of these examples. God will rescue the godly and judge the ungodly. It's as simple as that. God will rescue the godly, judge the ungodly. Verse 9 The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. So, Christian, be assured. The sacrifices you're making in living by God's rules in an ungodly environment will one day be rewarded. God knows how to rescue believers from all those challenges to faith that we experience in this world. And then the apostle concludes with this, and so will we. We'll pick up what we left off next week. Verse 10, this is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desires of the flesh and despise authority. Peter is piling up some very strong words here. A literal rendering would be going after flesh and a passionate longing for defilement. He's talking about sexual sin here, probably including in light of Peter's reference to Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 6, homosexuality. But he also tells false teachers, he tells us that they despise authority. It's a general charge to the effect that the false teachers are self willed, they're rebellious, they despise authority. Though in both this verse and in the similar verse in Jude 8, we find the accusation that the false teachers are despising authority followed immediately by the charge that they heap abuse on celestial beings, on angels. So that might be a specific example, but we'll look at that in more detail, or willing, next week. False teachers and their destruction, part two. Amen.